So it was the night of November 3rd, 1992. Um, I was a few months into my freshman year at Biola University, a Christian liberal arts college in Southern California, and Bill Clinton had just been elected president. Now, like many Christian institutions, Biola leans a little right, so the, uh, the mood was a bit sour among the student body that evening. And I remember an upperclassman friend of mine saying, you know what we should do? We should go to the flagpole at the front of campus. This is actually it, right? Right on the outside of campus, we should lower it to half-mast. Oh, oh man, my, my, my teenage rebellious heart was so excited. I was, I was, you know, a civil disobedience with a cause here. You know, Rick Warren wouldn't write Purpose Driven Life for 10 more years, but I was ready to live mine right now, right? Uh, make a statement, tell the world what a sad day it was. Now, I hope, as you can tell, I look back on this day a little differently than I did at the time. Don't get me wrong, I, I still love 18-year-old Doug with fire and his much leaner belly at the time, but uh, ready to don a black t-shirt, go evade campus safety, bike patrol, to uh, enact some sort of reverse Iwo Jima moment. I'm not sure what we were thinking, but part of what I realize now as I look back on that evening was what a complicated message that would have communicated to the community around our college. Right? We were supposed to be a Christian college, not a political party. And I realize now that I was giving myself to a tribe rather than to the truth, to a cause rather than Christ. But here's my confession. I'm a recovering tribalist. And what I mean by that is there have been many times in my life, and I continue to do so today, that I I choose the allegiances and the priorities of organizations above the mission of God's calling and his kingdom, then and since. And on that, that particular night, we did not enact our clandestine plan. I'm sure someone was like, why don't we just go to In-N-Out and get cheeseburgers? And we were like, that's good. Let's do that. But I would venture to say we've all been in somewhat of a similar place in life, right? Where when we, we give our allegiances to tribes, whether it's political or social, racial, generational, political, or excuse me, not political, but um, professional, or whatever, and, and sometimes we sacrifice a little bit of the truth along the way. And as long as my tribe can grow, the truth maybe can be a little relative, but, but my friends, it's a, it's a dangerous path to go down. So to unpack that today, I want to take a look at Paul's writing to the early church in Philippi. So he says there that our citizenship is in heaven. And I want to understand a little bit more what that's about. So as we, we go on this journey together today, please join me in prayer. Loving Lord, what a wonderful privilege it is to be a part of your heavenly family as one of your children. Thank you, Lord, for all the grace and love that you have poured out on us to give us a heavenly inheritance. I pray that today you will open our eyes and minds and hearts to your deep abiding truths. And throughout the rest of our lives on earth, may we glorify your holy name in our conversation and our conduct, that we may be empty vessels for your love, grace, and mercy, and that our kindness would draw others to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's head to Philippians 3 and read what Paul has for us today. We're going to start in verse 17. Excellent. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and observe those who live according to the example you have in us. For many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. I have often told you of them, and now I tell you even with tears, their end is destruction. 
Their God is in the belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. Here comes the contrast. But our citizenship is in heaven. And it is from there that we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humiliation that it may be conformed to the body of his glory by the power that also enables him to make all things subject to himself. This is the word of our Lord. Thank you. Now, before we jump into what I think Paul's trying to tell us a little bit of today, I think it's helpful to understand a little bit of the historical context, the time and the circumstances in which it was written. So here's a little map, uh, hopefully you can see it, of, of Philippi, kind of right there in the middle, Rome's upper left, Jerusalem's bottom right. Um, Paul probably wrote this letter while in prison in Rome, most historians think, somewhere in the early 60s AD, 60, 61, 62 AD. Um, Interesting, Philippi was actually um, the site of a pretty key military victory, um, cleverly referred to as the Battle of Philippi. Uh, Fun fact, this battle was actually where um, Caesar Augustus had joined with Mark Antony to defeat the forces of Brutus and Cassius, the leaders of Julius Caesar's assassination. So it's a pretty well-known Roman colony at this point, um, and actually a lot of Roman soldiers were known to retire to Philippi. It's like, it's like the villages without the golf carts. But. Philippi was also the first city in present-day Europe where Paul had established a church. So there's this interesting collision between the dominant world power of Rome and this early beachhead of the Christian church happening here in Philippi. And in this letter, we find Paul encouraging the Philippian believers to live as citizens of a heavenly city, growing in their commitment to serve God and one another. He talks extensively about Jesus being the supreme example of this way of life, and that Paul, along with Timothy and Epaphroditus, also were trying to be good examples to this church. And in chapter 3, we find Paul wrestling with the question, where does righteousness come from? We actually talked about a little bit earlier in the service. And he starts in chapter 3 by getting into the idea that, you know, if we could gain righteousness through personal actions, um, he would be, in his words, the Hebrew of Hebrews, which is a cool title. He gives this laundry list of why he would be inducted into the Jewish Hall of Fame. You know, he's blameless under the law. He's on the eighth day circumcised. He's got the right vibe because he's from the right tribe. You know, and then he hits us in verse 7 with this line, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ and his righteousness. See, Paul was willing to give up any personal claim of righteousness, anything that he had done good in his life, to claim Christ's perfect righteousness, to submit to Christ in that way. He said, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He goes on to say that he knows he's not perfect, but now reconciled to God in faith alone, in Christ alone. He is, quote, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Paul then continues, he returns to his earthly warning that we kind of read in our scripture passage just a minute ago. Those who are self-focused, they have their mindset on earthly things, and it brings us to our verse for today that I want to focus on, verse 20. He says, but did this just die? No. Um, And it is from there we are expecting a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the crux I want to talk about today. What is... Where did, that's, a, that's a slide back. There we go. What does heavenly citizenship mean? What does it look like? What does it require of us? And maybe what does it require of us to give up? To start with having our citizenship in heaven, as I said, is a contrast to those people that Paul warns us about in verse 19. Let's look at it again. 
Those people have their minds set on earthly things, selfish things, the things that tribes set their mind on. But a mind set on heavenly things, set on the truth of God's word and God's work, looks for all that is related to heaven, including the glory of our returning Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Paul's calling us to seek and to find eternal satisfaction in Jesus rather than the fleeting tribal pleasures of the world. And Paul does this by calling us to be citizens of heaven awaiting our Savior. And I want to look at those really two key words. I know I'm digging in really deep here, but citizenship and Savior for just a moment. Citizenship, the idea comes from the word meaning four colonies outside the mother country with certain specified rights. Now, Paul's audience would have completely understood this in the day, right? They were citizens of Philippi, but they were also citizens of Rome, right? And even if they had never been to Rome, they had never seen Rome, they understood the importance and the current reality of what it meant to be citizens of Rome. They were indeed also citizens of Rome. And the same is true for us as believers. Though we haven't been to heaven uh, and we're not there now, as far as I can tell, uh, the current reality is that our citizenship, even now, today, is in heaven. It's our true home. Paul's calling the Philippians out of their Roman citizenship and pointing them to a higher calling, something that that superseded being Roman. And Jesus is calling us to the same. You know, many, if, if not most of us, I would assume here are citizens of the United States of America, right? And we can be thankful that I love my country. Frankly, I, I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. I'm pretty fond of it. Um, but we have something that supersedes our American citizenship. We, as Christians, we are part of a greater land, a greater place, a greater home for all of eternity. We are citizens of heaven. So what about that word savior? It's a pretty cool word. We talk about it a lot in terms of Jesus, right? We associate that. But interestingly, Paul doesn't actually use this word a lot in his writings. It's pretty rare for Paul to say savior. Um, but I think he's using it intentionally here. And I think he wants again to make a contrast between Rome's tribal authority over these people and the truth of the kingdom of God. Because it was actually the ruling Caesar believe it or not, who was seen as the savior of the world. You know, in, in part, that was his political role, was to be savior. You may have heard their catchy campaign slogan, no other god but Caesar. You know, and we actually see this savior language, believe it or not, this is, a, this is an inscription about um, Caesar Augustus from 9 BC. So this predates Christ's birth. Uh, he reigned, he was reigned while Christ was born. But um, in this inscription, I don't read it natively, I did have to trust your translation, but he is called Savior. He is called God. And he has said, quote, that he would end war and arrange all things. In fact, even the term gospel actually comes from the vocabulary of ancient politics. It was the good news that a new king had ascended the throne or they'd won a, an important battle over an enemy. Runners would come home from the war front bringing the good news, the gospel of Rome's victory. So I hope you can see how using these words citizenship and Savior Paul's words were actually downright rebellious to these people, right? Claiming citizenship to another kingdom whose leader is taking Caesar's role as savior for himself while you're living in a Roman city? Yeah, no wonder Paul was in jail, right? Or look at the story of Jesus's birth, right? King Herod finds out that the Magi want to visit this new king of the Jews, right? You may remember this portrayed <clears throat> rather dramatically this past Christmas, 
in a children's musical, just in case you'd forgotten. But um, back to the biblical story. We immediately learn that Herod's troubled. There can't be another king in his kingdom. That's not right. He won't stand for it, right? So he concocts this plan to find out where Jesus is so we can kill him. We didn't go into that detail, per se, in the children's musical, but, but that's what he wanted to do. And his plan, his plan's thwarted when an angel warns the Magi off, and we read what his response is in Matthew 2. Herod, quote, killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. You want to see a dramatic effect of tribes' decisions over truth? Wholesale slaughter of babies was Herod's answer. We could say more about this in our day too, but that's a topic for another day. So fast forward 30 years now, and uh, there's an itinerant rabbi walking around. He's claiming to be the ruler of a new kingdom, savior to the world. He's got a gospel of good news. Yeah, Jesus got some attention from the authorities too. The tribes didn't care for his truth either. So when Paul sees all these terms, oh, that's Jesus walking around. I should pay attention to my notes. So when Paul uses all these terms writing to the Philippians, it isn't just to give them the good feels, right? It, it's revolutionary. If not, quite frankly, it's downright seditious what Paul's asking these Christians to do. But instead of asking his people to overthrow the tribal government of Rome, he wants them to overthrow their tribal heart. And he wants them to surrender to the kingdom of truth. You know, if our citizenship is in that kingdom, right, then this church and all churches are, are embassies into the world, right? And we are ambassadors bringing the good news of the true gospel to those who are lost. And I think that's, that's an amazing, beautiful image of Christ and the church and of, of each of our roles here while we're here on earth. But here's the problem. We've gone native, folks. As a church body and as individuals, we often do not act as citizens of God's kingdom. Instead, we've taken up tribal allegiances on earth, even to the point of allowing these earthly tribes to twist the gospel message for their own gains. Like, I was willing to do that night in college. And I hope you don't see what I'm proposing as a stretch, right? We don't have to look far to see political tribes, ideological tribes, denominational tribes, social tribes. We identify as Republicans or Democrats, Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, Disney versus DeSantis, right? Vegan versus carnivore, LGBTQ plus or traditional values, pro-life, pro-choice, for arming Ukraine, against arming Ukraine, Gen Z, millennial, boomer, Ford, Chevy, Mac, PC, like the list could go on and on. And as identifying as one of those tribes, I don't think it's inherently wrong about it. You could be a good Christian, you could still vote, you could still run for office, you could join in a protest, you could serve in the military, you can own a PC, right? <laughs> Or you can do none of those things. That's the freedom we have in our faith, right? But we do need to start to realize that, that when we start to identify as a citizen of a tribe, something starts to happen. All of a sudden, everybody not in your tribe becomes the enemy. Think about the last angry email or Facebook post you saw, hopefully not wrote, or that snarky comment you heard at work about a coworker. It's so easy to take sides, Right? And I don't know who Tom Gold is. I want to give credit to him because I thought this was brilliant. Take a second to bring that in. Our blessed homeland versus their barbarous wastes. Right. And in fact, if, if it seems to you that we're almost hardwired into this tribal mentality, I would say, you're right. 
and so would modern psychology, actually. And to illustrate this a bit, let's hang out with two groups of uh, fifth-grade boys in the good old 1950s, shall we? The Robbers Cave study was a landmark psychological study led by social psychologist Musafar Sharif that looked at how conflict develops between groups. Now, the researchers divided their boys aged 11 and 12 into two groups for summer camp at Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma. And their goal was to study how conflict developed between groups and also how to resolve conflict, how to reduce it. And so the boys arrived at camp in two separate groups, right? And for the first part of the, t- the study, they only spent time with their group. They didn't even know the other group existed, right? And they, uh, the groups chose names. This is the Eagles. There were also the Rattlers, which is awesome. And each group started to develop their own group norms, their own group hierarchies. And after a, a short period of time, the boys became aware there was another group at camp. And upon just learning of the group, they began to speak negatively about the other. And at this point, the researchers, uh, you know, who were acting as camp counselors through this whole time, they, uh, they began the next phase of the study, a series of competitive challenges, tug of war, baseball, that um, these activities, and then there would be a trophy awarded based on team score at the end of this. And here's what they found. After the Eagles and the Rattlers began competing in the tournament, the relationship between the two groups became tense quickly. The groups began trading insults, and the conflict quickly spiraled from there. The teams each burned each other's flags. They raided each other's cabins. When uh, On surveys, they would talk about how uh, they would rate their own group more positively than the other group. And during this time, the researchers also noticed a change within the groups as well. The groups became more cohesive in their in-group. They became more bound together. And they also became more unified in their hatred of the out-group. The campers even devolved into conspiracy series. This was a favorite that I came across, which was one of, the, one of the groups of campers had come to the pool early in the morning for a swim, and they found it cold and cool. No surprise to those of us who have pools in Florida, right? Uh, but they insisted what had happened was that the other team had snuck in overnight and dumped a bunch of ice in the pool and made it cold for them. Now, I'm sure some of you may be thinking, sure, sure, sure. That's how boys act at psychology summer camp. But we're better as adults. My friends, we're not. I hate to break it to you. In fact, study after study has shown that from children to adults, that as soon as we start to sense we are in a social grouping, we start to behave in discriminatory and hostile ways toward outgroup members. Psychologists call it social identity theory. You could look it up. It'll make you more knowledgeable, but it'll make you kind of sad too. But these same studies show that we're even willing to win less as long as the enemy tribe loses more than us. We would take less of a reward as long as it means they lost more. Here's the problem. Everybody thinks their tribe is great, and it's the other tribe that's the problem. Knowing what we know from Robber's Cave, are we any surprised that politics has become the battleground waged in the most selfish of ways? Where we demonize each other just to make a point? Where if things don't go our way, there, there must be some nefarious plot at hand to explain it. Where we compromise our standards as long as we can ensure the other side doesn't win. Now, you may think politics is different from Robert's Cave, Doug. There are real values at stake in our political party, things that have to do with capital T truths. I humbly propose to you today that our allegiances to tribes, political, social, whatever, has far more to do with Robert's Cave than gospel truth. 
Let me say that more clearly. Our allegiance to earthly tribes is a detriment to capital T truth. It will blind us. It will incentivize us to compromise our values and it will seek to ruin relationships. I think we could agree we've become a deeply tribal nation, right? And it's taken away our ability to disagree and still talk to each other. Now we disagree and we demonize, we castigate, we cancel. Can you imagine for a minute if God took that stance with us, right? If you look down on us, he's like, I disagree with your sinful decisions. Uh, and so I'm going to hate you and I'm going to cast you away from me and I never want to see you again. I mean, he'd have every right to of anyone. But in fact, he does exactly the opposite, right? He says, I hate your sin, but I love you with a depth of love you cannot even fathom. So much so that I'm going to make a way for us to be in relationship. And it's going to cost me my son to do it. That's enemy love. Jesus showed us the way again, this time in Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Jesus paints a pretty clear picture here that we're all in it together. You know, the sun rising, rain falling on all of us. We are all his creation, all made in his image. And if you only love the ones you love, you only greet your brothers and sisters. If you only want to be seen with those who believe what you already believe or vote the way you vote or look the way you look or act the way you approve, we're no better than a Gentile, an unbeliever. We've learned nothing from Jesus. Earthly tribes will gladly destroy relationships in the names of upholding values. When in fact, building bridges to those who disagree with us is exactly what Christ called us to do. See, Jesus didn't come to earth to recruit culture warriors or political rulers. He claimed to make disciples, like Nicole's been talking about for the last two weeks, who would lay down their lives not just for their friends, but for their enemies. He came to announce that through his work, God's kingdom of love, justice, and mercy was coming to earth just as in heaven and everyone was invited to taste and see that the Lord is good. You don't need to be morally pure to join him. In fact, it's impossible to be so. You don't need a certain set of politics or an annual income or a certain nationality to qualify. You don't need a certain racial or cultural or sexual identity to be welcome. You don't need to look a certain way or dress a certain way or talk a certain way. These are all tribal requirements. Their only requirement to be a citizen of the heaven is you leave your tribes behind and you follow him. So how do we break out of our tribal bonds, right? How do we live in our truth of our heavenly citizenship? Well, you know, I'm not going to preach without saying, read your Bible. So let's establish that here, right? Depending on your demographic group, uh, the average American spends anywhere from over two hours a day on social media, anywhere from three to five hours watching television. We saturate our minds with worldly tribal guidance for hours every day. So I beg you, please don't say the word, I don't have time to read my Bible. 
We do. We just don't make it a priority. And each of us have different reasons for why that may be. Maybe we don't think reading the Bible is truly valuable. Right? Maybe, we're, maybe we're a little scared of what it would cost us if we felt more deeply what God calls of us. But at, if you're not reading your Bible, I'd encourage you to be, be honest with yourself and ask the question, you know, what answer would I give God that would be sufficient if he said, why weren't you reading my word? So read your Bible. But part of the answer of what we can do is actually found back in Robber's Cave. Because if you remember correctly, the purpose of the study wasn't just to understand what created conflict, but to understand how to diffuse it. Seems like that'd be something useful in our day and age. So once all the researchers got kids to go Lord of the Flies on each other, they, they brought them together for some fun activities, right? Such as uh, having a meal together, watching a movie together, these sort of things. However, they found it didn't really work to reduce conflict. For example, the meals together devolved into food fights, which should surprise no one who knows 11, 12-year-old boys, but surprise, surprise. We need studies to know this. But then they had the two groups work on what, the, what psychologists call superordinate goals. That's a fancy word. It just means goals that both groups cared about, something that was bigger than just the individuals. And they had to work together to achieve it. For example, the camp's water supply was cut off, so uh, researchers forced the, you know, the the, intentionally, the researchers cut off the water supply. So they forced the two groups to work together, and lo and behold, the eagles and the rattlers laid down their flags and worked together to fix the problem. In another instance, the researchers made it so the truck bringing in the food to camp couldn't make it all the way in. So the, the boys got together, and they got a rope, and they pulled the truck into camp. And they found that these activities didn't immediately repair the relationships between the groups, but, but working on shared goals started to reduce conflict. And eventually the groups started calling, stopped calling each other names, perceptions of the other group improved, and friendships even began to form between the two groups. And by the end of camp, some of the campers requested they, that everyone be able to take a bus home together, and one group even bought beverages for the other group to eat, or excuse me, to drink on the ride home. See, conflict isn't inevitable and it's not intractable, but simply bringing groups together isn't enough to reduce conflict. We have to, we have to work together on these common superordinate goals that are bigger than tribal selfishness. And that's a huge part of what heavenly citizenship, I think, means, right? It's why Jesus traveled with his disciples, doing work together. It's why the Bible talks about the body of Christ and how it's good to be in fellowship, and we shouldn't abandon that. It's why Paul writes to the Ephesians, and he says, the, the gifts he gave, Jesus gave, that were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to measure of the full statue of Christ, working together, seeking unity for the common goal of faith, knowledge, maturity. All of these are superordinate goals, solving bigger problems together. And we should be doing this inside the church, and we should be doing it outside in our community with those people who desperately need to know about the deep, deep love of Jesus. I think sometimes we might forget, I know I do, that Paul's letters were written to the church to correct our behavior. They weren't written so we could point at the world and say, man, that's a messed up world. They're so sinful. Tsk, tsk, tsk. I can't believe it. No. No, quite the opposite. We're supposed to approach the world humbly with a servant's heart as ambassadors of a heavenly kingdom that wants to welcome them into citizenship. The Bible says it's God's kindness 
that leads us to repentance. Is the church known for its kindness? Is it known for being loving, for being humble? Or is it known for being tribal? Paul talks about what mindset Jesus modeled for us a little earlier earlier in Philippians. This is chapter 2. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So how deeply should we humble ourselves? How obedient should we be to Christ's call to be peacemakers? How far should we love our enemies and pray for them? How much should we endure for the sake of the gospel without resorting to violence and anger and demonizing those we disagree with and who persecute us? To the point of death on a cross. Jesus ministered to the lost in kindness, in peace, in meekness, in joy, in love, and he never compromised the truth. The truth will set us free, but it also might set us on a cross. Being a citizen of heaven and an ambassador for its king is a call to submit everything, everything we think is important on earth, every tribal priority for the sake of the call of Christ and his goal of love, of enemy love. When Nicole first mentioned I was going to preach a couple weeks ago, she referenced a devotional that I had shared at a session meeting um, that had kind of led her and Bertie to ask me to prepare a sermon on this topic. And so I'm going to read a little bit of what I read that night, just a bit. Um, it's from this book called Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. Yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, just for a little bit of context, the passage uh, before the passage I'm going to read, the author was talking about how we have this unquenchable longing to return to the Garden of Eden. Um, when life worked the way it was supposed to. There's only one way back. And every politician, media mogul, activist, and friendly neighbor claims to have it. Every tribe offers some vision of Eden, the world as it should be. But all of these visions are sham. You won't find your way back to Edom, Edom, Eden by reclaiming America's Christian heritage and making America great again, fixing fixing every social inequity or creating racial harmony. Your tribe's utopia may sound grand, but all utopian dreams share one thing in common, failure. Every tribe promises their own version of utopia, but no one can deliver on their promise. That better world, what the Bible calls the kingdom of God, isn't going to come through a social protest movement or a political candidate or a moral revolution. The truth is, your tribe isn't up to the challenge. Only God's king can bring God's kingdom. Everyone wants the kingdom without the king because they want the kingdom on their own terms. But the king is the only way back to Eden. If you reject the king, then things will never be the way they are supposed to be. Something about this message connected with you today, uh, I'd encourage you to spend some time reading Philippians this week. It's only four chapters. You have the time. But I know I I learned and am encouraged in other ways as well, so I wanted to present a couple other resources if you're interested. Um, If you like music, on the left here there's this band called Salos. They do concept albums about whole books of the Bible. They do one on Philippians, which is great. Um, There's the book I just read from, Truth Over Tribe. Uh, I found it a very convicting and encouraging book for this recovering tribalist. Um, I know Jim Miller told me he's reading it and has been enjoying it. So, um, And then uh, if podcasts are more your thing, there's a great podcast called Winsome Conviction. 
um, whose tagline is deepening convictions without dividing communities. I encourage you to give that a listen. But I pray for us all that we may be in the world, loving others, working with diligence, and glorifying God in our actions as his disciples, while not being of the world and caught up in the things of the world's tribe. And maybe we be wise enough to discern the difference. God has set eternity in our hearts. And soon our days on this earth will end and we will be in a heavenly home forever. For we are a heavenly people with a heavenly inheritance and a heavenly king. And that is amazing. But for now we are ambassadors and we are sojourners. We are strangers and aliens in a foreign land. May we cling to God's word and to each other as we traverse the challenges of this world. Amen.